Okay, we're going to learn about it. Are you going to be designated drivers? I don't have any. We're a boys. Okay, so good afternoon. Today we're going to be as Purim is this week, so we're going to be starting and learning about Purim today and its significance about its holiday indifference to all the other different holidays that we celebrate. If we look at all the holidays in general, we know that Purim is one holiday, and then all the different holidays have a very different nature to them, just by the very fact of the way it's celebrated, uh, as we're going to go to into detail. But in general, we know that the Purim holiday is a day of significance and opportune time, we know the month of Adar, because of the holiday of Purim, is considered a special mazel, which is a good luck for Jewish people. And we know that the day of Purim, in general, is a time which is an opportune time for great things to happen physically and spiritually. Just the two little footnotes, so to speak, of stories that happened at the time that show us a little bit of how this, uh, how this is a special day. There is a, um, a story that I actually mentioned on Shabbos that happened in 1953 on Purim Fabrengen during the Hasidic gathering that the Rebbe had in Purim 1953. Generally, by every Fabrengen, the Rebbe would speak many different talks. But amongst the talks that the Rebbe would speak was also called a discourse, a minor. And when the Rebbe would say a minor, a discourse, it was very different than a regular talk. Well, a regular talk would have covered any type of issue, whether it was a t- issue with Talmudic text, or it was a Talmudic analysis, or it was a Hasidic analysis, Zohar, Kabbalah, cover all many different things, and of course intertwining it with contemporary application. You could also discuss uh, com- uh, events that were going on at the time as well. A Mimer, on the other hand, was first of all, the Rebbe was in a different mode. It was customary, you'd know when the Rebbe was saying a Mimer, it came with an introductory song, which was as preparation for the Mimer. During the mimer, all people in attendance would stand. The Rebbe's eyes were closed, and he also had a handkerchief wrapped around his hand while he said a mimer, which this was a Hasidic uh, a custom of all Rebbe's when they said a mimer, was so to speak, to keep them in the materials, to be able to keep them here in this world, because the mimer was, so to speak, of a spiritual ecstasy. They say, just in a, a footnote of a footnote, in 1978, after the Rebbe had his heart attack, the doctors monitored um, the Rebbe's heart by the first Fabrengen that the Rebbe gave, because he was constantly on a monitor. Those days was actually one of the first remote control monitors that you didn't have to be held up the machine. They got it from NASA. It was a whole different story how they got it. But the bottom line is the doctors were sitting on the side, and the Rebbe was saying a uh, Hasidic discourse while he had this monitor hooked up under his shirt. And while he was saying the minor, the doctors were watching, and all of a sudden it looked like it almost flatlined. And they were like, what do we do? Do we run over? Do we stop? What's going on? And they uh, decided, you know, we see the Rebbe talking. So, <laughs> and afterwards they went, as soon as the mimer was finished, everything went back to normal. So they even saw on the Rebbe's phys- physique, so to speak, things change even while they were saying the mimer. And generally in the early years, after 1988, it was very rarely that the Rebbe said a mimer. He only, I think, said three mamar, three discourses after that. But before that, usually every Shabbos, every holiday, there was a Fabrengen, and during the Fabrengen, 
there was one discourse per Fabregen. 1953, the Rebbe said a mimer, and they the Fabregen continued. All of a sudden, later on during the Fabregen, the Fabregen got a little serious. Uh, the Rebbe's face was, became very serious, and he was preparing to say another mimer, which was a big surprise for everybody because the Rebbe already said one. And before he said the second mimer, he said the following story about during after the fall of the Tsar, and it was officially elections. It was the first time that Jewish people were allowed to be part of the elections. And the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, then told everybody to go vote in the elections. A chassid does what his Rebbe tells him, but if the Rebbe told him to go vote in the elections, then automatically it becomes a holier thing to do. So he goes and prepares himself accordingly, to, goes to the mikveh, goes to, puts on his uh, gartel, puts on his whole Hasidic garb, and goes to vote. But what does he know about voting? He goes and he votes, and as he comes out, he sees there's a whole commotion outside. There's a whole uh, to-do, and people are saying, hooray, 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 but he doesn't know what hooray, hooray, hooray is. He thinks that they're saying, hoorah, he's evil, he's evil. So he also goes, hoorah, hoorah, he's evil, he's evil. And with that, the Rebbe got quiet. The Hasidim understood that something serious is going on here, and all of a sudden, everybody stood up and said, Hoorah! Hoorah! This was in 1953. Hoorah! At that time, it was going on. Uh, after the Hasidim said that, the Rebbe then continued, started the discourse, and the whole discourse was about getting rid of evil, making sure that evil to its core, that the source of all evil we got in order that Haman was the source of all evil, and therefore the whole purpose of Purim and the whole great objective of Purim was to get rid of the core of the evil. That was the discourse. A few days later, Russia announced that Stalin got, uh, died. Said, they said that on Purim he got sick, but then he died. But they know that he, had a, he actually got a stroke and he actually died on the actual Purim around the same time that this discourse was being said. At that time, this was a very terrible uh, plot that Stalin was planning at the time. It was something called the doctor's plot that he arrested nine doctors. One of them was his personal physician, which was a Jewish person. And six of them were Jewish doctors, and they claimed that the doctors were poisoning the people and making mm -hmm. this whole thing. And the whole plan was that eventually to take, the, they were going to put them at the court and say the Jews were behind us, and they were going to exile all the Jews, all the millions of Jews in Russia, and put them in Tabir Bijan in Baku. Mm -hmm. He already prepared a place there. They even had Yiddish name streets to put all the Jews, so to speak, in that one being ghetto. And this was, so to speak, the pretext to it that the doctors plotted, the Jewish people are responsible, and that's where we're going to send them. With Stalin's death, the doctors were let out of prison, and that whole plot was absolved. So this is where the crux, so to speak, this happened in the middle of a Purim Fabrengen. In general, the Rebbe's Fabrengen's on Purim were something unusual. First of all, the events that the Rebbe spoke about, things that the Rebbe said and did, uh, the type of atmosphere was there, and many people on Purim in general got their blessings in many different ways, in more ways than one, whether it was spiritual and physical. Another interesting event, this happened in uh, Purim of 1956, 1955. This was, you can actually hear it on tape. This, uh, both of them you can actually hear on tape because it was during the week, so it was recorded. And another event that happened was, the Rebbe was talking about by the Favrengen, all of a sudden, you know, very things that, you know, were out of this world that occurred. And the Rebbe is talking about the Favrengen that in this world there are different types of challenges that people go through. And there's a challenge of poverty and there's a, a challenge of wealth. And the challenge, though both of them are challenging, let everybody just have the challenge of wealth. 
That should be their challenge, how they're going to spend their money and they should do it in the right way. But the Rebbe then said that the custom is in America that everything has to go for a vote. That the, it's a democratic country, so therefore everybody votes for us, everybody uh, nominates if they want to be able to do it. And the Rebbe says, you can hear, he says in Yiddish, all those that want, he was like saying it in a joking, in like in a very, um, you can hear in a happy tone, he says, all those that want to take upon themselves the challenge of wealth should raise their hand in, the, in their full, you know, totally obliging to it, like they're willing to do the lave of Shalom with a complete heart. And a people thought, maybe it's a joke, maybe the Rebbe's kidding. So only a few people, I think four or five people, raised their hand. And the Rebbe then bemoaned, he says, everybody complains and writes some letters and says, oh, they need blessings for sustenance and wealth and, and they need money and everything else. And now I'm giving a blessing and nobody wants to pick up their hand. But four or five people picked up their hand, and they say one of the people that picked up their hand, his name was Shmuel Isaac Propek. He was an interesting individual. And once he, just to give you an example of this fellow, he, was, he never used to want to, he always drove a beat-up Jaguar. He had a Jaguar, and it was always had a, had a bang in it. You know, it always had to make sure to have a beat-up Jaguar. So I once asked him, he says, why, if your son drives a beautiful Lexus, what are you driving? A he says, his father has money, that's why he drives a nice car. <laughs> so... Uh, but he was an individual, and at that time, right after that Fabregen, he was one of the people that raised his hand by the Fabregen. After that Fabregen, he told the Rebbe he wants to go into real estate, but he needs money to go into real estate. To buy, you've got to make a down payment on a house, you know, to buy real estate. He said the story, he actually he said, he didn't say that he raised his hand, but he said the story how he started off in business. So he wrote to the Rebbe, he says, I need to make a few dollars to be able, if you can get a loan or whatever it was, from, we needed money to be able to invest. So the Rebbe tells him, in America, you don't need money to buy a house. You can take a loan from the bank. So that's what he did. He took a loan, bought two houses, rented it out, and he said, then, Baruch Hashem, he made a living from that. <laughs> Mink, Mink, today, he's one of the largest landlords in Brooklyn, put it that way. I mean, today he's not alive anymore. His family was able to... Mm, but they're doing okay. He did pretty, put it this way. He had some gifal tavish, as they say. <laughs> so... Um, the bottom line is that, what well, my point is that Purim Fabrengans were a time where the Rebbe uh, enjoyed the concept, or was they, you were able to see was on a different level. And many people, this was only by many Rebbes, it was a time where it was an opportune time for blessings, an opportune time for spiritual growth, an opportune time for materialistic growth, and completely different than any other holiday. Lagba Omer was the only other time that you saw that as well, in an open way. And the question over here is, and back to our question, is what is so unique about Purim, different than any other holiday that has this type of atmosphere with it? If you look at the concept of Purim and the way it's celebrated, it's also celebrated very differently. It's celebrated to the extent that it's above and beyond. It's the only holiday that you're obligated to drink. To the extent to drink that you shouldn't know the difference between blessed is Mordechai and cursed is Haman. All of a sudden, what's the Torah telling you to drink? Since when does the Torah can drink, condone the concept of drinking? And if it's condoning drinking, why purr more than any other holiday? Why all of a sudden, and then when you want to condone drinking, and what kind of drinking the Torah even said, so to speak, the Talmud, I shouldn't say the Torah, the Talmud sets, or Jewish law sets the bar, what kind of drinking that you shouldn't know the difference between cursed as Haman and blessed as Mordechai? Cursed is Haman. Haman is the opposite, the absolute evil. Mordechai is the absolute good. And you're saying you shouldn't know the difference between the two. You're conflating the two. Isn't the whole 
isn't the whole Megillah, we read last week the destruction of Amalek, isn't the whole concept of the Megillah that we have to get rid of Amalek, you have to get rid of Haman? And over here we want to conflate the two, we want to mix the two? How does that work out? Interestingly, you would think that, okay, it's a Jewish law, but not every law does everybody maybe observe to its fullest. But the Talmud goes on to explain, and when the Talmud says a story about a law, is to be able to bring it into reality to show you how the great Talmudists would actually practice and the Talmud tells us a story, that an event that happened in the Talmud on Purim. Rabbah and Reb Zeyra were two great Talmudic scholars that once got together to celebrate Purim. And they both, in Hebrew, were pretty inebriated. To the extent that Rabbah got up and he slaughtered Reb Zeyra. Now, slaughtered, there's different commentators what it means that he slaughtered. If he literally slaughtered, he had so much to drink that he felt like he was slaughtered. Or he wounded him, that he was as, as if he slaughtered him. Regardless, he was pretty bad. <laughs> to the extent that the next day, he prayed for Abzera to be healed, and Abzera felt better. <sighs> the following year, now you would think that we learned a lesson, the following year, Rabbi calls Abzera and says, Hey, you want to party again? <laughs> Abzera says, Not every day does a miracle happen. <laughs> and he rejected but from the very fact that you see the story, A, the fact that Rabbi invited Rebzeir wasn't because he just wanted another party. It wasn't because of the fact that he just felt good by being an Hebrew. Meaning that there was an obligation, a certain type of level of festivity or inebriation that was seemingly required to the extent, A, that Rabbi invites him the following year to come again. And B, the very fact that it even happened the first time. We know these are Talmudic scholars, they're not just drunkards that are looking for another time to be able to have a drink and the fact that they let go of themselves. In fact, why is it, someone is say, that where do we even see the concept of drinking in the Megillah, that it's not only a Talmudic custom, but if you look in the Megillah, the Megillah says that Mordechai and Esther set the days of Purim not only for a holiday, not only for days of joy, but days of festivities. The word mishta. That means... Every other holiday, when it comes to Purim, when it comes to Pesach, Shuvah, Sukkot, we know there's Simcha. Simcha means you have to be joyful. And how do you have joy? The Talmud describes it by having meat and wine. But over here, when it came to Purim, there's an added word, which means Mishta. That means don't only drink your regular joy, but also a step more. And from there, the Talmud learns that a person is obligated to become inebriated on Purim to the extent that they shouldn't know the difference between Blessed Haman. I'm sorry, I'm already up to there. You see, curse the Talmud and bless the Mordechai. So the question over here is, why is it, number one, that Jewish people are all of a sudden condoning the concept of being inebriated, that a Jew should drink? And we know in general in Jewish history that drunkenness, inebriation, did not bring to the greatest uh, events in life. And why is it that over here, all of a sudden, that the Torah is telling us to be Sometimes, uh, in this case, to be inebriated. Take two classic examples that uh, being inebriated brought to terrible uh, events was Noah, when he drank, and Lot, when he drank. When Noah drank, he was satirized by his son, and when Lot drank, he, was, uh, he had his two daughters took advantage of him as well. So we see that drinking doesn't bring to good things to the extent that we know that drinking it brings to the opposite of calmness of mind, of patience, of tolerance, or even being in control of what you're doing. So why would it be that, again, in this case, that drinking should be something which should be condoned, or inebriation should be something that which should be condoned? In general, if we look at the concept of what alcohol does to a person, alcohol does to a person, takes a person to an extreme. 
a person who generally is a happy individual, who has a good way of thinking and is a happy, when they drink, they get more excited, they get more jumpy and more uh, enthusiastic. A person who naturally has like this depressed, sad type of demeanor, so to speak, all of a sudden they drink and you see they start crying and they start becoming depressed and whatever maybe. Why? Because alcohol brings out the extreme of an individual. To the extent that we know that there were three individuals in the Torah, we mentioned two of them before, who drank, who had alcohol, and because of that, brought their demise, if you want to call it, or brought their destruction. Number one was Noach that we mentioned, then Lot, and even more so Nadav and Avihu, the children of Aaron, because they became inebriated. That's why they were paid a, a dear price, which was that they expired because of it. They died very early. An interesting medrash, Medrash talks about the drinking alcohol. The Medrash talks about when Noah came to plant his garden, his vineyard, was the first thing that he planted after he came out of the flood. So the Satan came along to Noah and said, can I join in planting your vineyard? So Noah came along and said, sure, why not? You want to join me in drinking, why not? And he asked him, why are you making a vineyard? Why wine? Why are you planting grapes? He says, well, wine is something that makes a person joyful. It gladdens the heart. So the Satan came along and said, okay, let's be happy together. So the Satan came and he brought a lamb and he killed it under the vineyard. Then he brought a lion and he killed it under the vineyard. Then he brought a pig and he also killed it under the vineyard. Afterwards, he brought a monkey and he killed it under the vineyard. And he took their blood and he mixed it all in the planting of the vineyard. Noah looks at him and says, what are you doing? And the Satan says as follows. He says, before a, man, uh, before a person drinks wine, they're like a lamb. They don't know anything. They're calm. They're in control of what's going on. They behave appropriately. Once they drink, they drink properly. They become, their self-esteem, so to speak, grows. It gives them a little more confidence. And they're strong like a lion. But all of a sudden, once what happens when the person drinks too much, mm -hmm. then they become like a pig and they start rolling in the mud and rolling in their own, uh, on their own demise, if you want to call it, and they're everything else, and they start making themselves dirty and they're in lack of control. To the extent that he becomes real drunk, he starts acting like a, a, a monkey and jumping and making entertainment, and all of a sudden they become, start saying monkey. things that they shouldn't <laughs> be saying and things and so on. So over here we see very clearly that the concept of inebriation or intoxication is not something which is condoned or which is recommended, and it's not something which seemingly Jewish law is very fond of. Even more so, when it comes to the laws of Purim, there are many halachic authorities who say to be careful in how much you drink. You shouldn't be drinking too much. Maimonides, for one, Ramosh Yisraelish, who's brought down the code of Jewish law, all say a person can drink a little more than he usually does, but then go to sleep. And let your sleep be the time where you don't know the difference between cursed as Haman and blessed as Mordechai. But not to drink too much, because, they say we saw in the Talmud of what happened when people drink too much, what happened? Rabbi came and hurt We don't want that to happen. So therefore, we look at the story of the Talmud of what not to do, not of what to do. Because if a person comes to a state of intoxication where he is in lack of control, he should not do it. 
The question then is, but isn't that the purpose of drinking, that you shouldn't know the difference between blessed Mordechai and cursed as Haman? So how does that work out? What is the code of Jewish law telling us, and how does it work out that a person should then drink more? And why is it? And even more so, the question back to the beginning is, why Purim? Why not Pesach? Why not Hanukkah? Why not Shavuos? Why Purim out of all holidays? Why Purim then more than any other holiday, to the extent that initially Mordechai and Esther wanted to make Purim like all the other holidays, that you shouldn't do work on it. It should be like a holiday of Pesach and Shavuos where you don't have to do any work, and the rabbis did not accept it and not allow it. And therefore, today we know we're allowed to drive on Purim, we're allowed to do many different works that we do, on, that we're allowed to do on Purim, that we're allowed to do any other holiday. So why is it that out of all the holidays that we pick, that we should be so extra joyful, even according to the opinions that say you should not be inebriated, but even, they still say you should drink a little more than usual. But why Purim out of all of them? Why is it? And then I'm going back to our original question is why in the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai, why is that, so to speak, the measuring stick to be able to see how, how much you drank? Is if I can know the difference between Mordechai and Esther and Mordechai and Haman. Seemingly, I should get rid of Haman. The whole reason why we have Purim is only because Shaul Amalek, the king Shaul, did not get rid of Haman's great-grandfather, which was Agog, like we read in last week's Haftarah. And therefore, today, we have to worry, therefore, his great-grandson, Haman, wanted to destroy Esther and Mordechai and all the Jews. Why all of a sudden do we have that contrast that you shouldn't know the difference between cursed as Haman and blessed as Mordechai should have been the difference between red and blue, red, green and white, whatever it may be. Why those two people? So many people explain, and there's many different commentaries that go this. And over here, the person's one opinion is the Bach tells us is that the reason why a person has to know the difference between the they shouldn't know the difference between cursed as Haman and blessed as Mordechai is the taking the two extremes to be able to that a person should not go like Rabba was such an extreme. So we say, here's a litmus scale to you know. Once you don't know the difference, that's fine already. You don't have to go any further. Someone who explained why Purim was the one holiday that everybody celebrates more than normal is because if you look at every other holiday, there was a limited amount of people or scope that it affected. Pesach, Shavuos, it was a limited scope of how the holiday was projected. When it comes to Purim, Purim is the only time in history, even later on, even when Hitler wanted to kill the Jews, it was only the Jews in Germany, Poland, he didn't get to America. The only time in history that every single Jew in the world was threatened to be killed was during the festival of Purim. And therefore, the celebration is not a greater and in a more expanded way. But the bottom line is, still, why does it have to be in such a level? The Bach himself, as one of the commentators and codifiers of Jewish law, says, still in all, we, though we should not be inebriated to an extreme that Rabbi was in the Talmud, but still in all, the question is, why would Rabbi even have such a suggestion to be able to go to such an extreme, to the difference between Mordechai and Haman? So the many other commentators explain that says that the same way want to explain the difference and why Purim is different than every other holiday. The same way, by all the other holidays, there's a way that we celebrate that holiday. For example, Hanukkah, the miracle was with oil. Therefore, how do we celebrate it with? By lighting oil. 
Pesach, the miracle was with matzah. How do we celebrate? By eating matzah. Purim, how was the holiday? From the beginning to the end, every single part of the holiday was about wine. Achashverosh got drunk by the party, therefore he killed Vashti. Because he killed Vashti, Esther became queen. Achashverosh then got drunk, what was the party that Esther invited him to By all of them, it says, by the party of wine. They all involved wine, therefore he killed him. So because the miracle happened with wine, therefore we also should <laughs> celebrate it accordingly with wine. That's one answer that Avudraham gives. Why then do we make this litmus test of the difference between the cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai? So one suggestion is because they have the same numerical value. So as long as you drank enough that you know the numerical value of it, that means you haven't drank enough. When you Once you lose consciousness, so to speak, of the numerical, you can't do two plus two, then you know that you drank enough and you shouldn't drink anymore. So it's basically the, um, the numeric value of it. Others say that there was a time that they used to read a certain announcement, so to speak, it was Shoshana's Yaakov or a different prayer. And by the one prayer they would say, Cursed is Haman. By another one they would say, Blessed is Mordechai. So you shouldn't know when to say, Cursed is Haman and Blessed is Mordechai. That's what it means you shouldn't know the difference. Well, these are all wonderful translations and explanations of why to the technicality of it, but it still doesn't go down to the crux of the issue to why this concept. There's another uh, explanation as well is that because of the greatness of the day, that means on Purim, Chadush Yerim says this, was the previous, the first Agar Rebbe, he said this following, interesting uh, perspective. He says, because Purim is such a great day, that on Purim we can achieve the highest levels of spiritual material blessings, God didn't want us to use it, so to speak, to the fullest advantage, so he said, get drunk, so you'll squander the opportunity and you won't be able to use it properly. They say a story, the Baal Shem Tov says a story, that in the time of the Baal Shem Tov, there was a fellow, he took his bag full of money, and he took the money that he was going to do on his way to meet somebody that he was going to use the money for not such a good reason. Whether it was gambling, a prostitute, whatever it may be. On the way, God made it that he's walking by a house and he hears crying from inside the house. He walks inside the house and you see a destitute family who the father was just taken away by the pirates, which was the landowner, and they had nothing left because he didn't pay his rent. He asked the family, how much money do you need to get back your husband, your father? And they told him the exact amount of money that he had in his pocket. He took out the money and gave it to the family and the fellow was back. And the person was taken and, and you saved the family. On high they said, wow, Look what this guy did. He saved this entire family on the spot. Without any questions asked. Nobody knew about it. No attention given. He should deserve the greatest reward. But on the other end, the prosecution came along and said, look where he was on his way to go. What did he have the money for? So they decided that this individual, he's going to be blessed with the fact that any request that he asks of God would be answered. But there's one caveat here. If he is going to know that every request he asks from God is going to be answered, who knows what's going to happen? Who's going to, everybody's going to be taking it, it's going to be taken to the extreme. So therefore, was discreet upon high that this person's going to be a drunk. And because he's going to be a drunk, he's not going to know the difference between his right and his left, and he's not going to have the opportunity, he's not going to be sober enough to ask for a request. The Baal Shem once there was a terrible decree, 
How do we know about this? Because once it was a terrible decree, and the Baal Shem Tov sent some of his disciples to listen to the fellow. They come to this guy, he looks like a drunk. What, he's going to help us? He's going to pray. The Baal Shem Tov said, get him off the bottle for just one moment. Get him sane just for a little bit. Get him a little, get him a little bit uh, sober. And as soon as they got him sober, they asked him this question. He prayed on behalf of the people and it was answered. Because as long as he was sober, he was able to do it. What did they do? They made that he shouldn't be sober, so therefore he shouldn't take advantage of it. So too the fiduciary says that because God doesn't want us to, so to speak, utilize Purim to the greatest level, therefore he says, become inebriated, so therefore you'll exploit the opportunity. What if we have to be a little smarter than that? Not get inebriated so quick, but utilize the day of Purim and realize the great things that it can accomplish. So these are all different explanations that are given in all different types of discussions, in Talmudic texts, in different commentaries, and so on. But then we look at the Hasidic and Kabbalistic interpretation that gives us a whole new perspective on the story of Purim. And with two words in the Megillah, we understand this whole quandary, this whole question. The Megillah tells us as follows. At the end, in chapter 12, in the Megillah, it says the following. Chapter 9, the Megillah says, Kimu v'kiblu ha-Yehudim. The Jewish people did and accepted upon themselves to do the festival of Purim in these two days. What does it mean? They accepted, they did, and they accepted. What does that mean? Did they do the mitzvah of Purim? They accepted the mitzvah of Purim? What is this double terminology? And the Talmud says as following, in the Talmud in the tractate of Shabbos 88a says, that as the Jewish people were standing at Mount Sinai, at the foot of Mount Sinai, God came to them and said, are you going to accept the Torah? Mm-hmm. And the Jewish people uh, were saying, uh, you know, they were a little edgy. So God took Mount Sinai, put it on top of the Jewish people and said, listen here, fellas, either you accept the Torah or I'll drop this on you. Better you here alive or else there's no purpose of the world if there's no Torah. So the Jewish people accepted it reluctantly. You can say coerced to accept the Torah. When did they willingly accept the Torah? It was by the time of the story of Purim. By the time of the story of Purim, the Jewish people, it says, Kimu, they accepted, they did, Vikiblu, and they accepted. What does it mean they accepted? They accepted what they already accepted in the past. That means this, that they accepted on Mount Sinai. Coerced. Now they accept it by the free will. That means if you look at Purim, Purim is that holiday where we, the Jewish people, chose to have a relationship with God. Purim is that holiday, and it's said as that day that we, the Jewish people, made a conscious decision, not a coerced decision, to be able to be connected to God. This is something that's unique to no other holiday in the Jewish calendar. Take any other holiday in the calendar, whether it's Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, whatever you name it, we didn't accept it. For example... Take Pesach. Pesach was a time that not all the Jewish people came out of Egypt. Pesach, God just picked us up out of Egypt and said, let's go, we're going. And that's why we had to run out of Egypt and we didn't have enough provisions for the way. And that's why we're still eating matzah till today. The same idea is if you look in the story of Purim, who did Mordechai want to destroy? Look at the terminology that the, Torah, that the Megillah uses. The Megillah uses the terminology to destroy, to wipe out, to kill and to annihilate the nation of Mordechai. 
What does he call them? The nation of Mordechai. Men, women, and children all in one day. It didn't say only if you come from the Judaic exilers. It didn't say the people that are circumcised. It didn't say the people... It said the nation of Mordechai. You associate yourself with Mordechai? You're done. The Jewish people could have came along to Haman and told Haman, Mordechai is a great leader. He's been our leader for 70 years. He came with us from exile. We have nothing to do with him. He's a lone guy. Don't associate us with Mordechai. Because if you're going to kill out the people of Mordechai, we're not the people of Mordechai. We don't have anything to do with Mordechai. We're not listening to him. We went to the party. We have nothing to do with him. He's a leader. Let him scream. He's an old man. We have nothing to do with him. Not only that, Esther comes along and tells the Jewish people that before I go to visit Achashverosh, he she tells Mordechai, Leich Kenois Kola, you didn't go and gather all the Jewish people. And everybody came. Everybody was part of it. Nobody said, eh, I'm not showing up. Too tired, I'll go on Zoom, whatever it may be. Everybody, everybody showed up. Go in contrast to when the Jewish people left the, uh, left the exodus of Egypt, only 20% of the Jewish people left. The others didn't believe in the exodus of Egypt and died during the plague of darkness. Over here, every single Jew participated. Every single Jew said, I am a Mordechai. I am part of that Mordechai. No Jew said, I'm not going to be part of the Mordechai. Every single Jew said, I'm part of the Mordechai. I am the Jewish nation. I don't want to be left out. Every single Jew was part of it. Take the story of Hanukkah. Many Jews Hellenized themselves. Majority of the Jews Hellenized themselves. Matasio and Yehuda the Maccabee was left with a small minority. But over here, when it came to the story of Purim, not one Jew left behind. Every single Jew was on par. They were all the nation of Mordechai. And over here, the Alter Rebbe explains to us and says, this is exactly what happened on Purim. Purim revealed the essence of every soul, revealed who every Jew is, to the extent that they said, you're not going to tear us away from who we are. We are going to be a Jew, will forever be a Jew. The Pintalehi, the soul of the Jew, came to the revelation. This is exactly what drinking is. Having alcohol, consuming the drink, brings out the true essence of a person. If you want to know who a person truly is, listen to them speak when they, after they have a drink. <laughs> then you know who the person truly is and what they truly believe. And therefore, whatever began in Matan Torah was completed through the story of Purim. Whatever began at the time when the God, so to speak, coerced the Jewish people in getting the Torah, while the Jewish people were standing, as the Alter Rebbe explains in the Torah, already says that the Jewish people, as they were standing in a state of self-sacrifice, where Haman came along and said, should you convert, give up your religion, he wouldn't disturb, bother them. He says, if you associate yourself with Mordechai, I'm going to kill you. But the moment you say, you yeah, have nothing to do with Judaism, I'll leave you alone. But still in all, the Jewish people went above and beyond. They were in a state of self-sacrifice. The concept of self-sacrifice means beyond intellect. And a person drinks, and they don't know the difference between Mordechai and Haman. They're beyond intellect. This is exactly with the same idea. We have the concept of the masquerading. And the people wear, uh, wear, wear a mask and so on. This is the idea also that we see. The concept of you don't see who the true individual is. That's what Purim was about. To reveal the true individual to see who's under the mask. But take this even a step further. 
If you understand the story, if you look into the story that happened, the story that happens, how deep in exile the Jewish people were. You have a, a story where the Jewish people are, there's a party of Achashverosh. And what happens by the party of Achashverosh? What does he do? He invites all the people to come to the party. And when he invites all the people to come to the party, everybody can drink as much as they want. And while he's drunk and the drink king is drunk, he invites Vashti. And Vashti comes along. Vashti embarrasses the king by not showing up. Therefore, he calls over his seven advisors and says, let's get rid of him. What really happened here? What happened seemingly wasn't the whole point of the party that everybody can do whatever they want. So all of a sudden, Vashti does whatever she wants and he kills her. Wasn't that your point, that everybody can drink whatever they want, do what they want, behave like they want? So why are you killing Vashti? And the answer is, if you look, what did the Achashverosh do? The whole point of Achashverosh was to create a certain sense of anarchy. But where was the anarchy allowed? And what was the reason why he killed Vashti? Wasn't because she was, so to speak, embarrassed the king. Look at what the advisors had come up with. Because then every other girl or every other woman is going to rebel against her husband outside the party. That means Achashverosh said, where can you have the anarchy? Where can you behave the way you want? Only right here in the palace. But once it moves out of the palace, then we've got to kill you, then we've got to put it into control. Over here we see the same exact thing with the Jewish people. The Jewish people at this time, they could have said, we're living 70 years in exile. Where were they? We're not in the land of Israel. They were in a place where they didn't see godliness. But where did they come out the great revelation of their reflection of their connection to God? Was not in the palace while they were in Eretz Yisrael, when they came out of Egypt, when they were right by Mount, Mount Sinai. But when they were in exile, when they were outside the palace, when they were far away, that's when you saw the relationship, the stubbornness with the Jew, that they will not, for a moment, disconnect from godliness for a moment. This is what we understand now, the concept, the difference between of blessed is Mordechai and cursed is Haman. What did God do when he created the world? We see seemingly everything, we look at the world, this is evil, this is good, this is black, this is white. Everything seems that there's darkness and there's light. There's bad and there's good. But really what God was showing the Jewish people, that even within darkness, there's light as well. Within exile, there's redemption. During the most difficult time for the Jewish people, when they were suffered and threatened of annihilation completely, that's where they saw, and that's when they accepted the Torah in the most the greatest way. What is it telling us? That it is within the Haman, who seemingly looks like the evil tyrant of the story, where I see the blessed, where I see the coming out. Not, God forbid, that I see cursed as Mordechai. On the contrary, it's within the evil that I'm able to distinguish and show and come out with the greatest happiness and see the greatest light. Look at the story. Look at him. Look at what happens here. Look at the story of Esther. The story of Purim looks like the Jewish people would be in the most blessed way possible. What can be better for the Jewish people? They're in exile and their person is the queen. Of the, of, the, of the most powerful person in the world. We got one of ours in the high office. What can be better? But it was exactly at that time when Esther was in the, uh, in the most powerful person's home. 
that the most evil of individuals came along and said, I'm going to make this evil plot. I'm going to get rid of all the Jewish people wherever they are. But what happened on Purim? Haman's mask came off. Meaning, you came along and you thought you're going to be the most evil person. You came along and you thought you're going to bring about the most evil decree. And instead, what did you bring about? The greatest holiday for the Jewish people. <laughs> what is that telling us? That just like Mordechai, who is blessed and is a blessing for the Jewish people, so too we can find the most, in the most darkest of times the good that's in it. Even in a Haman, we can see you remove his mask and you will see the good that's there. The problem is, on a regular day, and when we're sober, and when we're thinking properly, we don't see it. This is black, this is white, this is evil, this is not. But when we get inebriated, when we drink, this is the secret of Purim, the day that we remove the masks, the day where God says the Jewish people are able to see beyond the veneer, the day that we can see something even deeper than what is there. And you can see deeper into Haman to realize that even in the Haman, there's also a blessing. Even in the most darkest and challenging times of our life, we can find the blessing that's there. This is what we talk about. The whole concept of Purim is the Nahapohu, that everything is upside down. Haman, who wanted to be the leader and destroy the Jews, he gets hung on the tree. The same thing is also the the opposite. What we thought was evil brought about the greatest holiday. And therefore, he says, if you look at Yom Kippur, if you look at the day the Zohar says that Yom Kippur is called Yom Hakipurim, the day that's like Purim. Why is Yom Kippur like Purim? Seemingly, Yom Kippur looks like the holiest day of the year. You're fasting, you're not eating anything. Purim, you're drunk. Who knows what's going on? So he says, what happens in Yom Kippur? You pray to God and you're telling God, you know what I did a whole year that I misbehaved? That's not me. The real me is the innocent one. The real me is the one that wants to be connected to God. The real me is the one who's pure. All those sins that I've done is only a veneer. That's why we begin with Kol Nidre saying, God, all those vows that I made, all those commitments and seemingly obligations that I have to the materialistic world, that's not really me. What's really me is my soul, my connection to God. It's like Purim, where we reveal the real me of the Jewish people. It's like Purim, who we reveal who the true essence of the Jew is, who the true essence of this world, that within every single item, even within the curse, is Amen. I see the blessed Mordechai. There's an interesting medrash that the medrash tells us that when God told Moses, "Remember the coming out of Amal- remember what Amalek did to you when he came out of Egypt," what was the word that God used? Zachor. Remember. Where do you know another time that God uses that word Zachor? When it comes to Shabbos. Right. Zachor at Yom HaShabbat HaKadjim. When the Ten Commandments. Remember the Shabbos and keep it holy. So Moses asked God, I don't understand. How am I supposed to remember that Shabbos is holy and remember I'm holy? One is holy, one is evil. You're using the same exact terminology. So God says to him, don't worry. How is it possible to look at it this way? Moshe gave the example and says, how are the two able to coexist? So Moshe says, it's imagine you have two cups. You have two cups, one cup of good wine and another cup of vinegar. They're both cups, but one has wine, one has vinegar. So too, remembering the Shabbos is holy and remembering to get rid of Amalek can both coexist. How do you coexist? What was, so the question over here is, what was Moshe's 
One to whom owes his question, owes the answer. He wants them not to coexist, so God tells him there's two cups, one of wine and one of vinegar. What, what, how does that answer the question? And over here, the Rebbe explains what this means in one of the discourses the Rebbe says as follows. He says, what was Moshe's question? How can somebody live with two opposites? How can I live? Remembering, remembering doesn't just mean a passive. Remembering means living in the present. I have to constantly think of that Shabbos is holy. And at the same time, thinking of Shabbos is holy, I have to think about how terrible Amalek is. How can I have in my mind, how can I coexist to exist? which are seemingly contradictory and difficult to one another. So therefore, God comes along and says, no. Two cups. One wine, one vinegar. What is wine and one is vinegar? Wine and vinegar seemingly come from the same substance. They're both grapes. One is fresh, one got old, and one is disgusting. But what are they both placed in? A cup. Over here, God was telling him every single person and every single thing in this world is a receptacle and is a vessel for God's blessing. Everything you have is a cup. And in that cup, you can sometimes have wine and you can sometimes have vinegar. But remember that even when you have vinegar, which seemingly is that poison, which is seemingly disgusting, remember, where did vinegar come from? From the same place that the wine came from. Mm -hmm. The same entity that gave you your blessing, gave you the, also the vinegar. Mm-hmm. When you have that in mind, you're automatically able to recognize that everything you have in life comes from God. Everything's a blessing. And then we're able to approach it and appreciate it and understand it and have absolute faith that even though it seems like vinegar, it comes from grapes, it's a vessel, it's in a cup, and it's going to be a blessing. And as long as we have the, this is what Purim gives us the ability to go beyond intellect. According to intellect, you're right. This looks like the biggest challenge, the biggest darkness, the biggest problem. But if I think about it for a moment, and I say it's in a cup, it comes from grapes. Just this is fresh, and this is out for a little bit. But if I realize it's all coming from the same place, we won't get confused by the outside flask. We won't get confused by its taste and smell, but we can realize we are all comes from that this also can bring a blessing in our life. When we know where something comes from, when we know what it's all about, automatically the challenge is easier. Just to finish with this uh, nice anecdotal story, there was once this fellow who was a wealthy individual in the Hasidic court, and of course, but he was also very petty. And if he didn't get what he wanted, or the respect that he wanted, he would blow up, and everybody knew this, that if he wanted to get the donation from him, you got to treat him with silk gloves, give him white glove treatment, or else he's blowing up, and he's, you know, that's it. So, of course, they gave him the respect that he wanted, and he got what he wanted. But he realized himself, being a true chassid, he realized that he has this problem. So he walked into the, to his Rebbe, and he asks his Rebbe, what can I do about it? I have this problem, but what can I do about it? So his Rebbe says, ah, it's nothing. So he looks and says, what do you mean it's nothing? It's a problem. It's detrimental to me. Eh, just made up. After he left, the Rebbe calls in the Gabbai, the person who's responsible to give out the Torah readings that week in Shul. He said, this week, don't give the guy Maftir. Give him Galila, the wrapping of the Torah that even a kid can get. The Gabbai says, did you realize what's going to happen? This guy's going to get Galila. He's going to blow up. He's going to stop all those donations. And it's going to be, uh, it's going to be, who knows what? 
But that's what the Rebbe told him. That's what he's going to have to do. But he, the Rebbe never told him he's not to tell him, right? So he went and told the guy, and he said, listen here, mister, you know, by the way, you're not getting mafta this week. The Rebbe said you should be getting galila. So, okay. Comes that Shabbos, and everybody's waiting for the guy to be called up for mafter, and he's going to give this big donation after the Mishabeirach and so on. He doesn't get mafter. And they see he's getting galila, he's getting to wrap the Torah, and they're waiting for this guy to blow a fuse and start screaming, and he's going to cut the donations and all that. He gets it. He does it. And he goes, Shashti, and he doesn't say a word. <laughs> so afterwards, no? He comes over after Shabbos. The Rebbe goes over, comes over to him and says, No, you got Galila. You were quiet. You didn't get upset. Everything worked out. So he says, Yeah, big deal. I was prepared for it. The Gabbai told me I wasn't getting it, so I knew I was gone already. I didn't get upset. So he says, No. And every other time you get upset, you're not prepared for it? He says, No, every other time. And it happens on the spur of the moment. It's a different game. He says, No, 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 no. Every other time, something of this that God gives us a challenge, God already prepared it for you. And if you just think about that any challenge that comes your way was prepared for you to be there, will go easy as that. It's only a question of thinking about that it's prepared for you. Same idea. We have to remember that everything that God gave us in a cup is prepared for us. It's there for us. And it's specifically for us. And we just have to find the blessed part of it in it. It could be hanging, but we got to find a blessing in it. And if we find a blessing, sometimes we have to go beyond intellect. It doesn't make sense. And if we're going to go into normal challenge, Purim, why is Purim such a special day? Because Purim gives us the ability to go beyond ourselves, to go beyond our intellect, to see the blessings in everything that God gives us. Hmm.